Welcome everybody. I'm Gwyneth Llewellyn and welcome to this Sydney Ideas event this evening, Can Mindfulness Save the World? We've got a very exciting evening ahead of us from now till 7.30. We're going to start with a very short video clip about mindfulness. But before I do that, I'd like to just acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on tonight and acknowledge their elders past and present. In the university, we pay particular attention to their knowledge and the knowledge that they've brought to us in Australia and to this university. So, I'll be introducing our panel in a few minutes, but first let's look at our video clip. You may have heard this word mindfulness. It's become something of a buzz phrase of late. I'm going to give you one simple serviceable definition, which is this. Mindfulness is the ability to know what's happening in your head at any given moment without getting carried away by it. Imagine how useful this could be. Just as an example, driving down the road and somebody cuts you off in traffic. How do you normally react? I think most of us, we normally react by having a thought, which is, I'm pissed. And then what happens next? You immediately, habitually, reflexively inhabit that thought. You actually become pissed. There's no buffer between the stimulus and your reaction. With just a little bit of mindfulness, in that same situation, you might notice my chest is buzzing, my ears are turning red, I'm having a starburst of self-righteous thoughts, I'm getting angry. But you don't necessarily have to act on it and chase that person down the road screaming at them with your kids in the back of the car thinking you've gone nuts. Now, you might be thinking, don't I need to get angry sometimes? Aren't I justified? I would say yes, but probably not as much as you think. The proposition here is not that you should be rendered by mindfulness into some lifeless, non-judgmental blob. The proposition is that you should learn how to respond wisely to things that happen to you rather than just reacting blindly. And that, my friends, is a superpower. How do you get it? The way to get it is through meditation. I believe that meditation and mindfulness are the next big public health revolution. In the 1940s, if you told somebody you were going running, they would have said, who's chasing you? But then what happened next? The scientists swooped in, they showed that physical exercise is really good for you, and now all of us do it, and if we don't, we feel guilty about it. And that's where I think we're headed with mindfulness and meditation. It's going to join the pantheon of no-brainers like brushing your teeth, eating well, and taking the meds your doctor prescribed for you. Let me just close by saying, Mindfulness is not going to solve all of your problems. It's not going to render your life a nonstop parade of unicorns and rainbows. Nonetheless, this is a superpower and one that is accessible by you immediately. So now we're in the mood for mindfulness. But just before we begin, there's another no-brainer. Well, a couple, really. The first is, the reason why we're here tonight, myself and Ellie Howes, who's standing over here at the other lectern, I suppose we call it, we're from Healthy Sydney University. And Healthy Sydney University is a population approach to this university being the healthiest university it can be. That means healthy people, healthy places, and healthy policies. And we'd really like to encourage you, particularly, to talk to Ellie or myself 
about what is Healthy Sydney University and why are we at this university thinking in really somewhat of a similar way as we've just seen in the video about public health or population health approaches to everybody in an organisation being as healthy as they can as well as the organisation itself being healthy. So that's my first no-brainer. The second one, I do have to remind you on behalf of Sydney Ideas that there's a survey on the seat or maybe it's on the seat next to you now and Sydney Ideas would really like you at the end of this evening to fill that in uh, because it gives them feedback on the topics and the content of what we do in this program of public lectures at the University of Sydney. But over now to our panellists and let me introduce them each of them will have just a very short time to talk in a moment and you'll see that I will be very strict with them so there's lots of time for your questions at the end. But let me start with Jane Cox who's first here on my left. And Jane's a consultant, facilitator and leadership coach who specialises in facilitating mindfulness programs for stress management, improved work performance, creativity and well-being. And we've been very fortunate in the university and in Healthy Sydney University to work with Jane and she's been now conducting mindfulness programs in this university. So we'll turn to Jane first in a moment, but I'm going to introduce everyone else as well. So sitting next to um, Jane is another Jane, Professor Jane Burns. And Jane is Professor of Innovation and Industry at the University of Sydney. Best description of Jane, I think, is social entrepreneur. Um, she's done many things, but she's also a motivational speaker and an advocate driving digital health reform through both public and private sector partnerships here in Australia, but also internationally. And then sitting on her left, on Jane Burns' left, is Professor Nick Glosier. And Nick is also involved with Healthy Sydney University and our Mindfulness Project. So Nick is a consultant psychiatrist specialising in epidemiology, clinical trials and health services research. And in particular, Nick focuses on the links between sleep and neurological disorders and how the interplay with a changing psychosocial and technological environment can lead to work-related disability, stress, stigma and discrimination. Next. So Nick is Professor Ray Cooper and Ray is Associate Professor in Work and Organisational Studies and Associate Dean uh, Undergraduate Business at the University of Sydney Business School. And as a researcher, Ray specialises in employment relations, specifically flexible working arrangements, gender, care workers and vulnerable labour. So her expertise is really about healthy organisations. And then at the end, Dr. Benjamin Vaness, who is one of the um, starting members of Healthy Sydney University nearly five years ago, I think, Ben. So Ben is a very strong believer in the mental health and well-being of university students. He now holds, he's a medical doctor who also holds a bachelor's degree in accounting and a master's degree in public health. Ben was president of the Australian Medical Students Association in 2013. He's really a very big advocate for mental health and he completed a Churchill Fellowship in 2016 which explored pr 
innovative prevention and early intervention strategies, particularly to improve the health, mental health of university students. And we'll hear from Ben in a minute, but I'm going to start with Jane. Now, Jane Cox, you're the practitioner here, and she's a trainer too in mindfulness. So, Jane, could you please summarise for us to get us started, what are the really key concepts of mindfulness and what does it actually involve in terms of the brain and the body? Over to you, Jane. Hello, everybody. I feel so natural up here. Thank you, Gwyneth, <laughs> esteemed panel members. Um, it's lovely to be here uh, this evening and very quickly I'm going to talk about um, aspects of mindfulness. Um, it's such an easy thing to grasp and a difficult thing to grasp, which is why um, you know, we're asking about it still. So, <coughs> I, <coughs> sorry, I like the John Kabat-Zinn, if any of you have heard of John Kabat-Zinn. His definition of mindfulness is paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment and non-judgmentally. So, participating in mindfulness in a way that is compassionate of yourself and your own efforts and what might come up for you within that practice. So it, is, um, it does take years and I invite you to think about this as just the start for some of you who may not already have a practice. Um, engaging in the present moment, we spend so little time in the present um, that roughly 50% of the time our mind is elsewhere and it's just extraordinary. I worked with a group today and they here at the university and they said, oh, I reckon my, I'm present maybe 5% of the time, 10% of the time. Um, so people know this is happening and it's concerning in many, many ways. So we do talk about what would, it, what would happen if we were present just a bit more of the time, what impact would that have and certainly you'll hear from the panel. So um, mind-body connection, mind-body mm -hmm. connection, um, just essential. Operating from the neck up. That's been my home for many years. Welcome body. Okay, it's a short body. We have very tall <laughs> But bloody hell, welcome to the mind-body connection. And that's really part of what we are doing. So shall I do a quick... Yes, please. Jane's going to lead us through. So let's try it out, shall we? Something to remember is it's easy but sort of hard at the same time. So those of you who are very familiar with this, let's assume the position, people. So feet are flat on the floor, parallel, and just <coughs> sitting upright in the seat. So a straight spine, without being stiff or rigid, you are um, comfortable, you're alert, and you're also feeling quite relaxed. And just in that position, take a deep breath. Feel the air entering the lungs, the chest, the abdomen. and become aware that you are breathing in and that you are breathing out. Taking your attention to your feet, just noticing the contact of the feet with the floor and the sensations that are coming to you from your feet. And knowing that at any time you can come back to the present simply by becoming aware of your feet 
the sensation of the contact with the ground, or taking a breath or two. I am aware I'm breathing in, and I'm aware I'm breathing out. And just in that very short exercise, noticing now how you felt at the start and how you feel now. Noticing any differences in mind and body. And welcoming you to this evening's fantastic event. I'll now hand back to Gwyneth. Thank well you, Jane. And I could see there are a lot of more relaxed faces, except mine, because guess what I thought of after the first couple of moments? Sorry, Jane, you know, the mind is always going, had I turned off my mobile? <laughs> I've just checked, I just have, and so could I ask you, if you haven't checked your mobile, before I move to our next Jane with the next question, please just make sure that your mobiles are off. Jane Burns. I want to ask you about mindfulness because you're a leading researcher in mental health and well-being and you've been involved for very many years in implementation, particularly using e-health and, and the digital technologies. And I know you were supervising a PhD student in Melbourne um, who was involved in mindfulness training in both healthy and in clinical populations. Can you just tell us a little bit about that work to I get us started? Too. Thanks, Gwyneth. Um, I started working in suicide prevention 20 years ago, and 20 years ago, suicide was the leading cause of uh, death for our young people. It's still the same today. So we've been really trying to explore, well, what are innovative ways in which we could actually bring to the fore new technologies to start to engage with people where they are? About 10 years ago, a psychiatrist, not this one, <laughs> <laughs> A psychiatrist who was interested in Eastern philosophy and the marriage with Western came to me and he said, I actually want to look at mindfulness practice and see if I can actually take it into the online space. Now, there's a real challenge in that because there's a question of how do you get balance? And so I said to him, look, we're interested. We think it makes sense. Reach Out as a service has been around for now 18 years. We know that young people engage through technologies. And we know that one in four young people experience a mental health condition over the course of their adolescent to young adult years. But is it possible for us to take mindfulness practice into technology? And as all good um, psychiatrists do and as all good academics do, we said, let's look at the science behind this. So there's a science around mindfulness as a clinical practical tool, as we've just seen. But what we were interested in was, can we measure the impact for young people? And so we've always done work with young people for young people and so we got young people to design what it would look like for them to think about mindfulness in their day-to-day -day lives. Now when you talk to young people, and Ben will vouch for this, um, they're often feeling stressed and they report feeling stressed. And this is not just young people, this is across the lifespan. And so what we said was, if we could devise a practice, what would it look like and how would you use it? And they said, we want it to be short, we want it to be practical, and we want it to fit in with our lives. And so Carve Monchat, the psychiatrist I was working with, designed it to do exactly that. That bit of research showed that, yes, you could actually engage in short, sharp spurts, as we've just seen, through technologies. That work was then taken by two people, 
um, Janie Martino, who's a marketing um, guru, and James Tutton, who developed um, cinemas um, where you sat outside to watch the cinema. Both stressed out workaholics, <laughs> both sort of going, we've had enough of the corporate grind and we've seen this thing, mindfulness, and what we want to do is turn it into an app for young people, for corporates, and it's called Smiling Mind, but we also want to measure whether it works. So that's been the little journey around mindfulness. <coughs> On top of all of that, we're now starting to develop what we call the evidence and the science of wellbeing. And what we're saying is corporate wellness practices don't necessarily work unless they're embedded within the workplace. Schools programs don't work unless they're embedded within the school environment. And as Ben will say, university programs, you can have someone come in and do a quick session, but they don't actually change practice. So our real question is, not is this about the technologies, but it, this is how do you actually embed this into the day-to-day -day practice across schools, universities and workplaces so you can really start to get people to think and change the way they manage their stressful responses. Thanks, Jane. And you can see why we asked Jane, because she's led us on to how do we think about mindfulness at an organisational level. But before we get on to our two organisational experts, which is Nick and Ray, who'll talk a little bit about that, I would like to turn to Ben, because Ben's particular interest is in university students. And yes, they're part of the organisation, but they're also young people, which Jane's introduced us to. The issue is about how is it that young people experience their mental health and wellbeing and how might we work with them? So, Ben, over to you. We'd like to hear something from you about mindfulness and university students, and you might like to even give us some insights from your Churchill Fellowship as well. Sure. Thanks very much, Gwyneth. So, the central thesis of my Churchill Fellowship was that for young people in Australia, mostly we're a physically healthy bunch, but uh, mental health problems, substance misuse, and uh, probably as a tertiary issue, sexual health issues would be the key health problems being faced by young people. And yet, because of their physical health, they're often a difficult group to access from a health service perspective. At the same time, we have increasing rates of uh, young people going into university. Now more than a third of young people will enter tertiary education, which provides a really wonderful opportunity to access what's effectively a captive group for about three, four, five, maybe more years as people are spending increasingly long time at university. What I think is missing is both a university institutional response to the fact that students' mental health is important and would actually benefit the university if it were improved, and secondly from the government, a recognition that universities are actually a really good um, public health setting for interventions from an early intervention or a prevention perspective. At the same time, when you think about mental health, most uh, serious mental health conditions will have their onset by the age of 25, which again intersects really well with that age group. So I think there are a lot of factors that point in the direction of universities as a setting for a public health intervention that's mental health focused. Uh, among young people, I mentioned mental health broadly. So that's depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, substance misuse, eating disorders most particularly, and then of course there are more serious mental illnesses as well, things like uh, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. But for 
everyone, there are some basic cognitive skills that would be really beneficial, I think, if you had that as part of your toolkit. It's a bit like in the video that we watched before, we speak about exercise as a way of building a, a healthy physical base. Similarly, I think things like mindfulness or cognitive behavioural therapy, uh, very practical life skills which are beneficial for any of us to have, but would be even more beneficial if they were instilled from a young age. So I'm particularly heartened by examples such as Monash University who have taken mindfulness meditation initially from the medical student setting where a gentleman called Craig Hassard from the GP section of their faculty started teaching it to the medical students and has subsequently broadened that out to be available to all of the staff and students at that institution. The point to go sort of up one from though is that when we think about how to embed something like mindfulness within a university, it really must start with a tone from the top of the institution which says that students' mental health is a priority. And so what I'd like to see is that an institution such as Sydney recognises that actually good mental health is an enabler of all of the other objectives of the institution. So we'll have better teaching, we'll have better research, better graduate attributes if mental health is improved and prioritised. And that has flow and effects onto the workforce as well. Thanks, Ben. And I should have mentioned that Ben had, for the title of his um, fellowship, it was called The Wicked Problem of Student Mental Health. And Ben's involvement in the university in being concerned about students' mental health, and it's probably fair to say, deriving out of both the medical school and the law school, where we know that students you know, undertake quite stressful um, curricula and activities. Uh, has been long-standing and it was great to see Ben doing this fellowship and bringing back knowledge to our university of what's now regarded best practice elsewhere. And he's introduced us to this idea of the organisation actually matters. I mean, Jane Cox, for example, gave us an opportunity to think about this as individuals, but it's getting to the organisational level. How do we create an organisation where mental health is really valued? So I'd like to turn to Nick now so that we can start to deal with some of those organisational issues, Nick. So I'd really like you to talk a little bit about the mindfulness pilot that we ran here at the university, which was facilitated by Jane, as we said, and the safety, health and wellbeing team, which is one of our professional units here in the university as part of uh, human resources. Would you like to talk to us a little bit about how mindfulness has been used and promoted in organisational settings such as the university to really enhance workplace wellbeing? Okay, thank you. Um, my job is to be a, uh, an open-minded sceptic. That's the job <laughs> of an academic. My job is not to believe things straight away. It's to take what people come with and suggest might work and actually evaluate whether things do work. And I've been working in that area for 20 years. And in organisational settings and other areas, some of those things are really difficult. People like to introduce programmes. They're a little tick box for the organisation. Say, oh, look, we're doing that. And actually, they never bother to evaluate it. Or if they do, they do a simple pre-post evaluation which means most people get better if you do something to them, particularly if it's something that's delivered by someone who's nice, who's interested in you, and also <laughs> particularly if you get an hour a week off your work. You know, Those are really good things to do. So it's important to show that if you're going to do these kind of things and embed these kind of interventions, it actually has 
a meaningful outcome, and hopefully whether those outcomes maybe even flow on into better engagement with the workplace, um, maybe even better performance in the workplace, or better relationships in the workplace. So some of those other aspects, and it's important to show those. So what we did at City University is we took the idea of looking around, well, what, what it does the data show? And actually, there are very few good evaluations of the embedding of various different mindfulness-based programs. And there's different types of them. So you've got to be very careful about what it says on the label of your particular mindfulness intervention. And we evaluated a study where Jane delivered a program, and it was based upon Craig Cassad's program from down at Monash, as Ben just mentioned, a six-module program delivered for people in the workplace. So they were allowed time off at work, and it was facilitated by some other members of the audience here, people like uh, Fiona and Julia. And but what we did is we had a waitlist control. So we had a group of people who also applied to take part in the program, but couldn't take part in the program because we filled up very, very quickly. And so what we did is we measured how people's mental health was, their workplace engagement, their vigour, other aspects of their engagement within the workplace, pre and post, so before and after the delivery of this intervention. And we compared it to the same group, to the group of people who are on what's called the wait list control. So people who are going over the same period of time who wanted to take part in this. And we showed that the intervention, the six sessions, could be because it's delivered by Jane and she's fantastic, but actually improved people's mental health and improve some aspects of people's engagement and well-being and vigour at work more than just being on the wait list. So it was better than, do, than just doing nothing, which is you know, useful to show because people do get better. Now, one of the key things about that is that there's something called the early adopter effect, which is that people who take part in these programmes actually are the ones who are really, really keen on it, and you've half sold them already. So we wanted to show very importantly whether if we ran the program again, we would get similar results with another group of people? And the answer is, yes, we did. Although, and in fact, I'm more impressed by this part of it because the second group of people, as expected, were less distressed, healthier. They weren't the people who were... The more distressed people always come and take these things on earlier. The second group of people were less distressed, which means it's harder to show that you have a benefit in people who aren't as aren't as badly off, who are, have greater well-being to start with. And again, we show that this second group of people also did better. So that adds, that addresses some of my cynicism. You know, it, it's impressed me, and I was quite surprised by the results, actually, that this particular intervention did have an effect not only on the early adopters, but also on the second group of people in improving distress and a whole bunch of factors around their engagement within the workplace. And I think that's why we're continuing to roll it out, because people in the university were to a certain level impressed by the results that we were able to get with university employees. So thank you, Nick. And he's just given, so I'll take it at just one moment here, um, to praise Healthy Sydney University, because actually, not just to praise us, but to praise any sort of population approach that starts off by examining a particular technique or a particular way of doing things, tests it out using accepted methodology, and then looks at how do you scale it up for the organisation so everybody can benefit. And that's been a really good learning <coughs> opportunity for this university to do that. So a very big thank you to all the people involved, Fiona who's sitting down the front, Rebecca, Nick, uh, Julia who's enjoying a holiday somewhere in the world, 
But here are people who are so committed to ensuring the mental health and well-being of everybody in this university. But Ray, I'd like to turn to you now too, because your work's about organisations and how we have healthier, happier, shall I say, organisations. Mm. So can we hear from you about how you see the importance of something like mindfulness, and particularly for some of the groups in the university who may feel a little bit disenfranchised or disempowered? Mm. I, I guess I'll pose myself here as the outlier, <laughs> um, being non-clinically trained and never really having thought much about uh, uh, these kinds of issues, particularly around mindfulness, not so much well-being, um, as it relates to my research. So I, I do research on women's employment, um, and I've looked at women's jobs and careers across uh, very different sectors and areas, from very low-paid uh, women in uh, what we call low-end jobs, what Annie Kahlberg, some of you may be familiar with, who's an American sociologist, refers to as bad jobs. Uh, so uh, precarious, low-paid um, dirty jobs, um, many of which are um, in the human services kinds of areas. Um, and I've done also quite a bit of work looking at uh, very senior women in organisations and um, their experience of careers. Um, so I guess, um, I suppose where I'd start from is um, trying to find a thread here that we can, can put, put it all together, is that I'd make a plea um, both to say that uh, you know, a, a view that tries to incorporate well-being um, and health in the workplace um, really needs to also take into account the fact that we do have some very systematic and structural issues which challenge people's capacity to be able to, to be in a healthy environment uh, when it comes to work. And that goes from the first group of people I spoke about, which is the very low-paid, disenfranchised uh, people in the workplace, through to very um, high-performing professionals. Um, and, and for me there are um, some issues there that potentially uh, might allow people to be more resilient in the context of high pressure um, jobs or, or bad jobs um, but they might also, it might also be that we need to actually um, spend much of our energy um, on looking at trying to change the structural, cultural um, and systematic factors that are actually driving those kinds of things in the workplace. Um, so I'm not sure if that's actually put any of that together at all. But, um, <laughs> you know, there was a report that came out launched by some of my colleagues yesterday at Griffith University investigating um, the careers particularly of women in higher education. Um, and that sort of goes to these two ends of the, of the, um, the spectrum in terms of uh, the university labour force. And they pointed out um, the massive casualisation that's been going on in universities and in many, um, many other sectors over the last 15 or so years and also to the, the very high pressure work that's going on at the higher ends of, of academia and in the university sector. Um, so uh, whilst I applaud action toward uh, mindfulness and to any initiatives that will help to sort of build healthier and more productive, uh, more engaged workplaces and workforces, um, I think that some of those very systematic issues which are really driving, um, what, uh, you know, are drivers, I think, to ill health, uh, I think we need to um, not forget about trying to address those at the same time. And I wonder mm. if I could turn back to Nick then, because that, that's an area of particular interest, I know, to Nick, which is the relationship between what's happening in our environment, whether it be more broadly in society or certainly in the organisation in which we work, and we're, of course, in the university tonight, but there'd be many other organisations represented in the room. And what you see is that interplay between what the individual's doing as well as the structural 
um, challenges, if we can put it like that, in large organisations. Sure, okay. <coughs> I'll try. <laughs> Sounds like several theses of work all there. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. Um, I very, very much agree with this approach, and I think one of the, one of the dangers about promulgating particular kinds of interventions is the idea that these things are the answer. And I'm old enough now to have been around for a time where, you know, previously the, uh, the quote was, um, the answer is cognitive behavioural therapy, what's the question? And I think the danger is now, the answer is mindfulness, what's the question? And although I think the data is building to show that there are impacts, if one looks at the data around the effects, the effects are small to moderate. They're there with other therapies. We're showing that actually there are some biological underpinnings to that, which I all think is really useful. But what I'd be really wary about is the idea that organisations go, we can do just whatever the hell we want because we're providing some mindfulness-based stress reduction courses and that absolutely enables us to wipe our hands of looking at any of the other issues. There is a long literature of work around workplace demands, the control that people are able to exercise within the workplace, and there's gender issues, so particularly for women around relationships at work, work-life balance, and there are gender differences yeah, found consistently in this yeah. area. Um, and addressing some of those components at a structural level, at an organisational level, is often harder but well worth doing. And so increasing people's resilience to work stress, and work is a four-letter word, you know, if you take the Marxist point of view, we are paid to give up our leisure so that, you know, so work is not meant to be entirely pleasurable and gorgeous and lovely, otherwise it would be called leisure, not work. <laughs> um, and so there, work is inherently stressful at some level, and so, but if we can increase people's resilience to certain aspects of that whilst dealing with the more toxic extremes, I think that would be a nice blended approach, but it's not the answer. Okay, so that's uh, work is a four-letter word, and the pleasure that you might get from work, I'm going to ask Jane Burns, who I believe does get pleasure from work, <laughs> even though it's not called leisure. I wonder, Jane, if you could talk a little bit more about your commitment to new technologies and why you think this is useful, not just for the individual, because much of that is around young people and their real interest in um, digital technologies, but why it also might be helpful in the context that Nick's alerted us to is that work has got some stresses and challenges no matter what and where those new technologies might fit in with, for example, techniques like mindfulness but also other techniques. Okay. I think the answer is it's not a one-size-fits-all and it never will be. So no matter what organisation you work for, and I was involved in the startup of Beyond Blue, and everyone said, well, if we could just put Prozac in the water, we would all be happy, clappy, and you know, life would be wonderful, and we would all love our jobs like I do. So there's a real question around Band-Aid solutions, and there's a real question around what do we mean when we talk about all of these amazing um, potential interventions that might work? You know, is it about teaching people the signs and symptoms of depression? Is it about teaching everyone mental health first aid? Is it about mindfulness in the workplace or in the university or in a school? And the answer to it is it's none of those things, but it's all of those things combined. And so when you think about you and, as an individual, where do you spend your time? You spend your time either, if you're a young person, at school, playing sport, engaging in um, cultural activities online. If you're an older person, 
person like myself and uh, Nick sitting next to me. <laughs> we all talk about work-life balance. How do we get this balance between enjoying my work and making sure that I've got enough leisure time to do the things that I enjoy, spending time with my family, with my friends and connecting with others? And we know the evidence on resilience has been around for about 50 years mm. and it's about how do you connect and what does it mean to connect in your day-to-day -day life. Now, technologies are not the panacea to this. It's not saying technologies are going to solve the problems of the world. What it's saying is, no offence intended whatsoever, but someone might come in and do a six-week program, someone might come in and teach you about the signs and symptoms of depression, but at the end of the day, you need to be connecting and you need to be communicating and you need to be participating in a way that is valued. And if you can do that and at the same time practice all of these wonderful things, then that's what we talk about when we talk about holistic ways of providing support and care. We believe that the technologies are a part of that solution. They're also a part of the problem for many of us. So it's getting that balance right. And I think mindfulness, again, I think it's a great technique, but it's about life balance, it's about life-work balance, it's about how you connect with others whether you connect with them sitting here and smiling at each other and going, yes, well done, Ben, I agree completely with what you say, or Nick, you're just a psychiatrist who uh, is stuck in your academic ivory tower, um, or whether it's actually online where you're actually connecting with other like-minded people. So I suppose what I'm saying is it's how you make the things work for you. And I think actually for the first time in history for our most vulnerable populations, those who don't have the capacity to engage in school, university, workplace. Um, people with a disability, people with such a severe disorder that they can't actually leave their homes. Then technology for us is a hook and it's a way of reaching mass populations where you actually get communities driving behind something that they care about. And I'll just give you one example and I'll finish up. There is a big evidence around gratitude. It comes out of Stanford. It comes from, again, um, philosophies that look at if you're grateful for something, your mood is far more likely to improve. And we know that that's true. We worked with a group of young people to say, tell us about the things that you are grateful for. You know, what is it that you feel grateful for? And they came up with about 15, 20 personalised pieces of content and we put it into a very simple app called Appreciate a Mate. Now, we weren't interested in the fact that it was an app. Like, there's about 55,000 million apps. What we were interested in was can this build community well-being? Because if you send it to your friend, who then sends it to your next friend, who then sends it to your next friend, and when you think about the internet as a setting as you would workplaces or universities or schools, you can start to build communities of well-being that promote a sense of belonging, a sense of connectedness, a sense of being valued. And so that's what we were really interested in. That app and those slogans have now gone out to literally hundreds of thousands of young people in Australia. And again, the science behind that, it's a constant evolving evolution of information and evidence. There is no one simple solution. There is no one tick the box healthy Sydney, you've done a good job, it's how do you continue to do this in a way that actually appeals to people? So I can see Ray is starting to have a comment here about community, this notion of how do you build community because in a moment we're going to talk about how leadership in organisations 
can actually bring together some of these things to create healthier organisations. But Ray, over to you about this building of community or networks, as Jane's been talking about outside of an organisation, but perhaps you might think about how does that happen in organisations or is it even possible to happen? Mm, well, I think, um, I think going back to drawing on my own research, um, particularly looking at things that I'm working on at the moment around uh, issues such as uh, work-life balance is probably a mischaracterisation because it's really about work-life interference and work-life clash. <laughs> it's kind of the experience of most um, people, particularly parents and those of us who have uh, other care responsibilities. Um, and, and I think that those kinds of um, you know, things that go on outside of the workplace, which I think absolutely... Uh, we sort of see them as different things, you know, that you have this thing and this thing and you've got to line them up somehow. Um, I think we've got to really start to see them as a, in a more holistic kind of way about the way that human beings engage with the world. Um, and, and I think organisations are just starting to sort of um, try to grapple with this a little bit. Um, and one interesting area that I'm looking at at the moment is around the ways in which... Um, organisations are trying to look at flexible working in a way which might be able to, to be that bridge. Um, so flexible work, uh, you know, has typically been framed as something that women, particularly mothers of young children, um, uh, can do um, to be able to um, have that balance. Um, but I think a, a more um, interesting way that it's being looked at at the moment is the ways in which organisations can mainstream flexibility and, and allow that to be something that's accessible for all employees at all levels at all times, whatever the reason. So it's not necessarily hooked off care kind of thing. It's not you don't have to have a particular excuse if you like in inverted mm. commas. Um, and, and that's something that I see might actually be able to have um, a broader look. I think it will. It is uh, something that we've shown is very very good for women and keeping women engaged um, across those particularly acute care points um, in their in their lives, um, engaged in the workforce and in um, developing their careers. But I think it's also um, crucially something that is uh, when mainstreamed and something that men um, can access and people who don't have care responsibilities can access is something that's that's good for organisational health and it's also good for you know people bringing themselves to work if you like which is a you know um, a, a phrase which is um, more and more creeping into our analysis of, of these kinds of issues so I think um, you know there there are ways there are ways that we can try to um, allow, it's not something I'm not really answering in terms of community building, I think, but ways that we can um, try to look at the things that we can do as leaders in organisations to try to, I, I think, move away from this balance metaphor uh, and maybe bring it more into what the human is in work and, and what the, the various things that human beings bring with them to work, um, what, they, what happens in work and how that affects um, what happens outside of the workplace as well. And I think maybe that's a that sort of more the human-based um, approach to it is maybe a little more um, fruitful potentially. Yeah. That's really helpful, and I'm going to turn to both Jane Cox and Ben. I'm going to turn to Jane to ask, as a practitioner of mindfulness, I know in many organisations, but also in the university, you're primarily working with adults. So I'd be really interested in your reflections on what Ray just offered us, which is around that notion of more balance and how mindfulness can assist there. And if you can, to also think about, is there a community here of mindfulness people? I'm not sure if that's what we call them. And then I'll ask Ben a similar question, but in relation to your fellowship and your experiences in this university with young people at university level. So over to Jane Cox first. 
Um, <clears throat> I think we are, certainly Fiona and I are carrying a flag out there, um, slowly, individual by individual, faculty by faculty, getting a bit of a, a mindfulness um, group and awareness happening and see a number of people from our courses are here tonight, which is just wonderful. So there is something that's ongoing beyond the six weeks and the I, I so uh, appreciate that this can be a the passion of the moment and the enthusiasm of somebody like myself who's very enthusiastic. <laughs> you probably didn't notice that. <laughs> Um, but the opportunity to get past that six weeks and the online, the support Fiona has with drop-in, a lot of it's modelled on what we've learnt from the Monash experience that's really supporting our staff here, staff then going, the ripple effect going back into their faculties or business units and being different. I mean, we have people who have said to us, I'm just noticing... Things are, it feels a bit kinder in the workplace. And this is in the research as well. I mean, how weird is that? Other people <laughs> saying, what it's given me is a second that I didn't have before. And at first, Fiona and I both thought, thought we'd done better than that. Thought there was a whole lot more. But that second is really that opportunity to make a different choice, the CBC um, or CBT approach around when I'm in a reactive state and certainly in the university with a lot of change, a lot, of, um, a lot going on, the ability to have a reactive versus a, a thoughtful response is fabulous. And I think this talk of community and networking is really important, but a lot of the work we do in our program is about the individual connecting with the inside, the self, the internal journey. And being different as a result in how they interact with others. And that's affecting our people as they go back into um, their jobs, their homes. So don't know if that answers that No, that's that helpful. All. And Ben, I'm going to come to you. In, and as I said, in a couple of ways, this notion of is there some community here, the notion of the internal for the individual. And I wonder if you'd like to comment just on your experience when you were here as a student. You were obviously the... Um, the president of the Medical Students Association, you've seen a lot about student mental health and wellbeing and thought about it a lot. So would you like to make some comments in relation to both those things, the community and also the individual? You know, the, the mindfulness is only an individual practice or is it more than that? Yeah, thanks Gwyneth. I mean, first of all, I'd echo the sentiment that there needs to be a whole of institution response to issues like uh, well-being of employees or students. That's why the first recommendation I make in my report is that there needs to be a tone from the top that supports mental health as something that's important to the institution as a whole. And I think the best example that I saw of that was from Queen's University where the Vice-Chancellor there has gone on public record making very supportive comments about the centrality of mental health to that institution. Sadly, that followed a spate of student suicides and what I'd love to see in Australia is that we can get to that point without needing the same sort of terrible trigger. As to mindfulness as an individual pursuit and as a community activity, though, or community activities more broadly, I spoke earlier about I see value in something like mindfulness or cognitive behavioural therapy as building an individual skill, something to put into your own toolbox for when you have challenges in any aspect of your life. 
But Oxford University had an interesting uh, use of mindfulness in that they're structured around colleges. So every student at Oxford is a member of a particular college and uh, mostly students would live at that college uh, or at college accommodation for much of their degree. There's a gentleman called Chris Cullen who's done a lot of work originally from schools in the United Kingdom and then he's gone on to teach mindfulness to members of parliament in the United Kingdom and he also runs the Centre for Mindfulness at Oxford University and goes into those Oxford colleges and offers mindfulness courses, uh, I think over eight weeks. And there's a co-pay model there, so the university makes a contribution and each of the students who participate pay about £40 for that course, about £5 per session. What's really nice about what they've done there is that after Chris has delivered this mindfulness course, there's then an ongoing opportunity for students to practice mindfulness, not just on their own, but collectively within the colleges. And so a different college will host a mindfulness night uh, on average about once a week, and they'll have you know, a two-pound contribution that covers the, the tea and biscuits uh, that you'd expect from a British institution. But it also provides then something like a club for students to come together. And that is really important, I think, not just in terms of helping to reinforce a mindfulness practice. I know myself, you know, there are times when I'm really good and make a strong effort to practice mindfulness and there are lots of times when I get really busy and distracted and put it uh, by the side. But just the same as we find, you know, for I like to run as well, if you're part of a running group it's often much easier to motivate yourself to get out of bed on a Saturday morning if you know that there are other people waiting for you and who are going to help cheer you on. So I think that Oxford example, and to a lesser extent Monash University in Australia has also done the same, can actually take something like mindfulness, although you could you know, insert intervention X here, uh, and you could use it both as an individual pursuit as well as the stimulus for creating then a community bond which both reinforces the practice as well as providing all of those other corollary benefits of a strong and positive community where people are coming together and supporting one another. As a student, I think those types of clubs and societies are one of the great strengths of the University of Sydney. And so the more we can have activities that are not just related to uh, a social event, i.e. a drinking event, the better as well, um, which links in with my earlier comment about substance misuse being one of the key issues affecting young people. Thanks, Ben. Now, I'm just going to ask them all one last question. And this is really, um, anybody can answer first but you only get one sentence and it's got to be the sort of 30-second soundbite because it would be the sentence that you'd say to, say, the Vice-Chancellor or the University Executive because, as Ben's already talked about and as he found in his fellowship report, it's about tone for the top, from the top and he'd just given us some great examples of that. So what would you say to the leaders of any organisation and because several of you are here from the university, but not everybody, of course. What would you say to the top, the leaders at the top, the 30-second soundbite, to convince them about mindfulness or change in the university more broadly, but only in a fairly short second? Do you need a moment to think about it? Because while you're thinking about it, I need to remind people that we're about to start our question and answers. And because we have a photographer here tonight, um, there will be photos taken. If you really don't want your photo taken at all or if it has been taken inadvertently and you wouldn't feel happy about that, 
would you mind at the close of night just coming down and speaking to Ellie, who's right here in the front row, so that we can make sure that that photo is, doesn't go any further at all. Okay, over to you. Who would like to have a go first? Why don't I go first because I'm the person with the less, at least content knowledge. Um, I would say that my advice to the Vice-Chancellor probably would be um, to build a respectful organisation that values uh, all of the human beings uh, that work and um, study and, and live within it. Um, and I think that's the, that, that, that would be my advice. It maybe sounds a little bit woolly and not particularly connected to um, the topic area, but I think respect and, and value um, of the people who make up a, an organisation is absolutely critical to, um, to, to building wellbeing and health. And Ray, because it's not an end of year exam and certainly not a viva, I won't ask you to explain what respectfulness means. Don't give me I'll get you after the, <laughs> the evening. Okay, who'd like to go next? Nick. Okay, okay. <clears throat> I think the answer is uh, if you want a sustainable workplace and a healthy workforce, you need to be a mindful employer in all senses of the word. Excellent. But don't you want to know what he means by a mindful employer? I want to know what a respectful university would be and I want to know what a mindful employer will be. But we'll come back in a moment. I know it's only 30 <laughs> seconds. Jane? I, I would say, and I know that the Chancellor is very committed to this, I'd say this affects your bottom line. Your students and their minds are their single most valuable asset and if you could embrace a whole of community approach, which includes mindfulness, you will start to see returns on your investment, which is your student well-being and them being more engaged in university life. And at the end of the day, they will be more productive human beings. Thank you. And Ben? And happy human beings. Oh, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Cut her off. <laughs> happy and productive. Imagine that. Productive and happy. Okay, Ben? I think I'd appeal to ego and say that an institution like Sydney University is just so perfectly placed to really lead in setting a positive example for the rest of the sector. With over a million students at university across Australia, we really need someone like Sydney University to stand up and take the bull by the horns and say, yes, we actually value our students' wellbeing from a holistic perspective and we're going to graduate students who are healthier than when they got here. Thank you. And Jane, you've been part of the university, meeting people in the university through the mindfulness courses. Last comment from you. Um, a happier university, a healthier university, we need role models. We need you to be one of them. Let's okay. sign up. Thank you. So we'll make sure all of those messages are noted and passed on. Now it's over to you and your turn. We have two microphones. We have Ellie down here in the front with one and we have Meredith up the back with the other. So I'll sort of organise the questions. So please, over to you, any questions and if you could say who you'd like to direct them to on the panel. And if you wouldn't mind just giving your name, don't worry about a full introduction, but it's always helpful for panel members to be talking to a name. So, sir, you were first, I believe. Just here, Ellie. I noticed that back in September 2013, on the front page of the Medical Observer was GPs calling for mindfulness to be listed on the MBS. I don't think it's happened yet, but one of the things that interested me was that when I think of mindfulness, I think of other, I guess there'd be secondary advances that come from it, and that is soulfulness, the gaining of wisdom, and a lot of that wisdom goes well with CBT, but it's the wisdom that I am a unique person that I have a value. 
Because a lot of our society things, it's like Shakespeare said, the world is fooled by ornament. There's still a lot of that going on. I've just finished reading a very interesting book that's called The Wellness Doctrine, written by a lawyer and talking about the fact that lawyers suffer depression and anxiety 3.2 times the general population and certainly other professionals. What interested me was that um, he talked about the fact that they're very competitive by nature. Now, obviously, things like mindfulness would help that. But what he didn't talk about was the fact of, you know, there used to be an old saying, the law's an ass. Um, you know, they're dealing with the dark side of humanity. And I guess if you're soulful and mindful around that, that could be quite damaging, I imagine. Is that a question to somebody? It is, well, it's both a comment and a question. Okay, guess, yeah. so who would you like to address it? Whoever's game over, enough to go for it. Okay, <laughs> over to whoever would like happy, to answer. I'm, I'm happy to have a go because I do think there are some real challenges with painting a picture that mindfulness is going to solve the problems of the world. And I think if people take it, you know, it's a bit like I've got to eat kale every day or I've got to, you know, you read the magazine and you're like, my diet is really bad compared to the probiotic, yogurt eating, kale eating, quinoa eating. So I think there's a real danger in painting a picture that the perfect life looks mindful, it looks like you eat healthy, it looks like you get out and exercise every day because life is messy. And I think the figure that you've given about the lawyers is true for the doctors, it's true for the frontline services, it's true for the mining fly-in, fly-outs, it's true for blue-collar workers, it's true for anyone who is starting up their own business. So... The, there's not an answer to it other than we need to start to be kinder and more curious about the way in which we provide our support services, whether that's through schools, universities and workplaces, or whether it's actually thinking about how we actually provide services, which is no longer that medical model of the doctor's right and you go away and you take the pill and you're happy and you're fine. It's actually holistically how do you support a person to engage and be as productive as they can be from both a mental fitness perspective but also from an engagement perspective and acknowledge that it's messy. You know, your life is not perfect. And I think many times we set up this theme that life should be wonderful and warm and happy and clappy and all of these things and that's not true. Um, I think I am the, the worst person at work-life balance because my life is just my life. <laughs> and we set these expectations that you've got to do certain things and be a certain way, and it's just rubbish. It's not life. And so that's part of the challenge, I think, in being all of these things to everyone, getting it right and allowing ourselves to make mistakes. Okay, on that note of making mistakes, does anybody else want to have a go? Nick? I, I just... I wonder how many psychologists and psychiatrists and other therapists are already providing various mindfulness-based techniques within what is basically a very eclectic and unregulated service delivery. Um, I bet you loads of people are doing it. <laughs> okay. Anyone else want to have a go? No? Okay. Other questions? Uh, lady here, uh, probably Ellie, yes, is easiest. That, no, that's fine. And then the lady behind you is fine, yeah. Hi, my name's Laura. Um, my question is directed to Jane, Jane Burns. Um, I'm a, sorry, I'm a PhD student looking at evaluating a mindfulness app in a university population from the other university. But, um, you know, there was a systematic review that was done and they, there were two apps that came out on top. I don't want to mention the names of them because more recently I read an article by Zindel Siegel who was quite scathing of the one particular mindfulness app because he says that 
you know, we know what mindfulness does, all the positive things, the benefits that go along with it, and the app talks about that. But there's, a, there's no evidence to show that the app actually does that. We know that mindfulness does. So um, you mentioned one app. I'm just interested in that particular question when we're talking about e-therapies. Um, and I don't know if there's any particular app that you know that have been, I know you mentioned Smiling Mind, but their evaluation and how that's been done. Okay, so I might just make a broad comment about any type of app, any type of e-therapy, any type of e, or now what we're calling digital. I do not believe that any of these things alone make a difference. They might be shown to make a difference in a randomised controlled trial or in a clinical controlled trial or in a whatever you want to call the trial, but when it comes to practice and putting it into practice in a setting, whether that's a school, a university, a workplace, or whether that's in a service, the thing that makes the difference is how it's supported and backed up. So we've just run um, community consultations with 10 communities around Australia talking to people with a lived experience. And you ask them what they do, they're not doing evidence-based practice, they're doing a whole host of things that range from trialling natural therapies through to trialling mindfulness through to reading books. People do things that feel good for them. Now the question for me is how do we start to really think about whether it's a service, and I think the comment about what do practitioners actually do, or whether it's a school or whether it's a university, actually having a space and a place to measure the impact and improve the quality of those services, to me that's the thing that's going to be the absolute game changer. Not the app, not the online intervention, not the millions of different studies that have been done in universities around Australia and the world, but rather how we put those things into practice in our schools, our universities, our workplaces and our services and how we ensure that they're embedded into people's day-to-day -day practice. Can I, just okay. answer, I can answer yes, that absolutely me. specifically if you really want to know. Um, we've actually just finished the systematic review, which is a sort of technical way of reviewing the effectiveness of, of these apps. And we've looked at all of the e-health apps that have been delivered within the workplace. Okay, so only the ones that have been delivered in the workplace. And we've split them into the supported and the unsupported. And within the workplace, the data shows that the CBT-based and the stress reduction-based apps only appear to work if they're supported. The mindfulness ones work if they're unsupported. Now, there aren't that many studies, but it is interesting. There is a difference in the effectiveness, or the efficacy, rather, in these two approaches, which is emerging. But like Jane says, you know, that's the ivory tower approach. <laughs> yeah. Which trouble. is the one that I I'm take. In trouble. <laughs> <laughs> what do you but, mean? The but the evidence is, be is beginning to accumulate, and there are differences. Nick, what do you mean by supported? Yeah, that would be helpful. Nick, oh, so, so, yes. So, what, what's the difference? So when they talk about apps or e-health interventions, well, Jane knows this very well. There's, there are certain e-health interventions that receive a degree of clinical support. Someone, you know, you type something in, and someone replies to your typing or checks what you're doing or maybe even phones you up and delivers an extra bit of clinical stuff. And that appeared to be required in the workplace to gain an effect for an e-health app to work in the workplace. The mindfulness ones appeared to work without that extra support. And there's a $64 million question about why and a prize for the person who finds out why. Um, this 
Yes, thank you. Ellen. Hi, um, I'm Jaren. Firstly, I just wanted to thank you all for coming and sharing your voices in this really important conversation. Um, I guess my question, kind of directed at Nick and Ben mostly, but everyone else as well. Um, I know, Nick, you mentioned the pilot study that you did with staff at the university about the mindfulness-based training course. Um, I know that staff are always more, well, I guess you could say potentially more motivated than students, and I think the dropout rate with students would be a lot higher as well. So I guess my question for the panel would be, what ways do you, or what kind of measures do you think would be most effective in getting students to attend these courses that would be offered as like supplementary to the curricula, and then how would you maintain students' interest or motivations to come? Co-payment. <laughs> like a, a paper, right? <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> ben? <laughs> yes. well, I, I, I'm laughing because Nick and I are working on a trial of mindfulness for junior doctors, but one of the issues we had with working through the ethics was if people are making a co-payment, then does that sort of affect the incentives and does it sort of blur the line? So we can't, I'm not sure we, I wonder how you trial that and prove your point. But I think getting some type of buy-in uh, is very important. And the other point that I make in my report is that you need to design initiatives with the target population in mind. So in medicine more broadly, I think one of the great changes is that we talk more about involving patients in designing interventions and evaluating things. Similarly, in a university, it's important not just for the vice-chancellor to wake up one morning with a great idea and say, okay, let's do this for the students, but actually work in partnership with them. And UNSW, I think, uh, probably far ahead of the University of Sydney on the student involvement in mental health front. They've got a group called Student Minds which just recently had their third conference and have been doing a really great job of incorporating that as a, a key part of what the counselling and psychological services offers. So that partnership with students I think is going to be key and whether it's co-payment or something else, I suspect the students will have the answer. Co-payment and co-creation. Yeah. The two, Coco. <laughs> and perhaps picking up Ray's point, co-respect might be part of that as well. I'm sure we've got, we can put a whole lot of points here together. Yeah, I, I don't have Ray. a particular insight into um, how you would, um, you know, have a, a lesser of a attrition uh, rate for students. But my experience um, in the business school in um, having students um, really want to come along with things that aren't, you know, for credit is really demonstrating, d demonstrating absolutely what it means for them and particularly for their careers and their professional development. And so I think having a, I think maybe this co-creation, uh, you know, and, and making it uh, relevant and attractive to the younger person. And I find that when my younger colleagues or my um, students themselves design um, activities uh, for students and, and run them themselves, it is a whole lot more attractive to them than having me, for whatever reason, um, design them as well. So, yeah. Can I just tell a quick Jane. story? Well, it's it's such a good example of why co-creation works. So Chris Rain, I don't know if people know about Hello Sunday Morning, but Chris Rain was working for the Queensland government. He was working in drug and alcohol, and he was designing all the campaigns around why you wouldn't binge drink. And he was a young man at the time, and he was doing his work nine to five, designing the campaign, and then Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, he would go out with his mates, and he would have a lot of drinks. He would binge drink, he'd have a hangover in the morning and he'd get up and he'd sort of go, okay, why did I do that when I know and I'm doing all the evidence-based education programs but it's not working. And he basically, about six years ago, I think it was, Ben, had an epiphany and said, I'm going to start up Hello Sunday Morning. 
but it's not just going to be about an app that teaches people about drinking and alcohol. It's going to be having a conversation about changing the culture in Australia. And so he created Hello Sunday Morning, and I don't know how many people now use it, but it's a conversation and a community about how to respectfully, that's a word, um, not drink too much. But co-designed, co-created and that whole thing of community, how do you share your stories of what it means to be successful or not and how do you pick yourself up and go, okay, actually this weekend didn't do so well but for the rest of the week I'm actually doing pretty well. And I think that's an example of co-design where he actually got people together to say how do we change it. How do we change things? So other questions and right up the back. I'm, I'm just I was late because I was somewhere else working. It sounds a little bit like you're setting up something like a religious community could be without, without people having to believe very much. Maybe they, they have now take aboard some secular beliefs and they maybe then other people get the, the helpful community building that goes on in, in good church organisations or other organisations but can be spoilt by people having very narrow views or willing to start because they don't accept anybody's beliefs. Yeah. Thank you. Anybody like to comment? It's this notion of community yet again. Well, I think it's a notion of community and I think it's a notion of feeling connected and caring about something in particular. And I, again, would go back to it's not a one-size-fits-all and you want to try and hook people into what makes sense for them. You know, mindfulness will not be for everyone. Cognitive mm -hmm. behavioural therapy will not be for everyone. <laughs> Belonging in communities is really, really important. You know, there's lots and lots of stuff showing that if you do not belong and you're socially isolated, you die earlier. And after a particular incident, you die earlier. And we've got lots of data I work with from Scandinavia that show that if you're a volunteer or you work in a community organisation, you're less likely to go on the disability support pension, you're less likely to become unemployed, and you're less likely to die early. So being a part of a community is a good thing for you, for your own self-interest, as well as good for other people. And we also know, um, going to your point, Jane, from earlier about the, the bottom line impact of some of these things and, um, you know, employees who feel uh, valued and respected as human beings um, as a part of their work are the most engaged and committed of employees. And so that has a, an impact on uh, things like turnover rates. It has an impact on um, productivity. Um, so there's something in there as well, you know, it might be a spiritual community that also has a, you know, like a, an outcome that, um, that has a sort of triple bottom line out outcome as well, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So other questions. I saw some hands up. Um, Meredith, again, I think to the back. Yes, I know there's someone over here. Don't worry. Uh, up there to the back. Yes, yeah, a gentleman with a purple shirt. <laughs> it can be really hard if you're at the back with the microphone seeing who it is. Hello. Great. This is a question for Nick uh, in regards to your evaluation. I work, uh, my name's Chris, I work, uh, I do a little bit of mindfulness in the healthcare setting and uh, there's a lot of scepticism, particularly by clinicians, about the value of it. And um, I'm just wondering, we know that it works at a cellular level, we know that it works, uh, it has some benefits for the immune system. I'm just wondering whether in regards to your evaluation, how do we know that it's, it's the fact that people are in a kind of support group setting for six or eight weeks 
that is the intervention because we know that just getting people together in such a uh, setting uh, is effective. Um, so is it possible to perhaps design a study where you can compare a sham mindfulness treatment versus a real mindfulness treatment from your perspective? Um, it's not just possible, it's been done over a hundred times according <laughs> to the systematic reviews we've got um, where you utilise a whole range of different other groups. The classic one being relaxation and on average the mindfulness-based stress reduction or stress reduction programs outperform a standard relaxation program occupying the same amount of time with the same degree of therapist contact and the same degree of participant engagement. If you want to review to convince people, and I say I'm, I'm, I'm still a bit sceptical about this, there is a really nice thing that the Americans produced in 2014 called the Evidence Map of Mindfulness. And I don't know if you see this, it shows you where there is evidence and where there isn't. So for instance, there's a whole range of where there's dubious evidence at best or no evidence at all in certain parts in cancers and um, distressing cancer, for instance, um, whereas there's really good evidence in certain other areas. So if you pick up that, it's called the Evidence Map of Mindfulness. Get that. gives you a really nice picture. I could have shown it about that. Thank you. And there was a... Oh, okay. And then we'll come down to the front. So please. Well, speaking of um, sceptical, I've been reading a lot of critique recently around the use of mindfulness in the workplace, particularly in corporate environments. And um, the panel has touched on this. Um, but the critiques I've been reading have gone a step further than the sorts of things the panel has said that, you know, it's, it's not for everyone and that the systemic issues need to be addressed and, and so on. And the critique, I guess, goes, you know, I'm thinking of people like Slavo Zizek, if I've pronounced that right, who would sort of say mindfulness is the opiate of the masses in late capitalism. Or... Um, other people working out of the business sector talking about cynical use or what they see as cynical use of mindfulness in corporate environments. I'll name one. Google has been named as, as potentially kind of a, a place that has that some claim is using it uh, cynically. Just wonder if anybody on the panel has strong thoughts on that and that maybe go a step further than the kinds of statements already been made about that. Um, I'll probably well answer them. Maybe yeah. um, we've actually done some work looking at uh, various Australian workplaces following people up and there's a, there's a kind of meta risk for workplace poor well-being and mental health which is called the psychosocial safety climate and we looked at this and basically there's one particular thing that seems to have a really strong impact upon whether you perceive, the, uh, think, oh, become unwell psychologically in distress as a risk factor and that is whether you think your employer is taking workplace health and safety seriously. The interesting thing about that is that holds true regardless of whether your employer actually is taking workplace health and safety seriously. So every, it's all in the perception. So actually, even if, it, even if a company is being a bit cynical and providing this intervention, if the people in the organisation believe that it shows the organisation's commitment, that may have a positive effect in and of itself regardless of whether what you're offering works or not. So um, you know, <laughs> I think there's an interesting take on that. Mm, that's caring or being seen to be caring. Being seen to be caring, mm, yes. That's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I guess I, I, um, I might well fall into the more of the structuralist kind of approach. Um, 
And I guess uh, it's not just about uh, behaviour and policy. I think it actually goes more deeply into organisations, actually. And I think we need to start to have a bit of a look at job design as well. Um, and so that's around um, not just relationships. It's around the technical aspects and the, um, the reward aspects and the value that's given to particular jobs um, and particular people in organisations and how we operationalise that. And I, and I think that's, um, you know, that's how organisations run. Right, and so that goes right to the very heart of um, uh, of what organisations do and how people interrelate uh, within them. And I think um, I think this could be approached in a fairly cynical fashion, um, but I would see greater value, I suppose, in actually having a deep look at. Um, and I'd be interested to hear whether you know um, how much research has been done in this kind of area. Having a deep look at, um, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this, but a deep look at the extent to which we, we have seen genuine um, changes and whether you can actually couple an approach, um, which sounds to me to be reasonably um, convincing, that we can have a humane and a, um, um, a just kind of way of approaching employees at work and potentially have a, have a look at job design, have a look at relationships at work and have a mindful approach. I don't necessarily see them as being in conflict, um, but I think um, to, to see... Um, an approach that individuals who essentially are a part of a very big machine in organisations and a very, a very big normative framework and, and a very big um, system, um, having, the, uh, having the onus put on individuals to sort of cope in that context or to, to, to deal with that in a particular way seems to me maybe to take a little away from those broader issues um, that are going on. So I think everybody on the panel agrees with that, that it's much more not only about the individual but certainly about the organisation rather than only an individual's responsibility. But I think there's a question right down here at the front, Ellie, so this is very good for the healthy bit. Question right over here, thanks. Hi, how are you? Okay. Um, about, just before I ask the question, about the thing about being supported and unsupported in mindfulness. When you're given something that's really emotive, it empowers you to want to do it. When it's something which is a bit more analytical and it's something you don't understand, you need support to be able to do it and that can be very alienating because you don't know the system behind the thing that's supposed to empower you. So that brings up the point that really the thing that would offer peace and allow us to be much more collaborative is being empowered in the work that we do and not having a support system outside of the work that is disempowering us. So, in regards to all these systems, and therefore that brings up Slavoj Žižek, which he says, like, practicing these things is almost like systemizing stuff. Like, how many words have already passed with, you know, respectfulness and all... I mean, they all come down to the same thing, which is being and being encouraged to be yourself and communicate that. So um, I'm questioning, you know, in all these things which you think are very complex where, in my opinion, they're actually much simpler. Are you looking at the environment to change the fact that's making these problems in the first place rather than having this cycle of you're in a disempowering environment and then you're looking at systems on how to empower yourself? It's like the difference of you're trying to collaborate inside a competitive market that doesn't want you to. You know, so how far are you going to push the, this change rather than um, the way you're going at the moment? 
Can I just comment on that? Um, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head and I think that's why we're currently saying what is the issue that's going on around our workplaces? What is it that's going on around our universities? What is it that's going on around our care systems? And you get into trouble when you don't feel empowered. And that's the bottom line of it. When you don't feel that you're valued, when you don't feel that you can participate, when you don't feel that you've got choice, when you don't feel that you can actually make the informed decision about what you want and how you want it to look. And so every time, you know, whether you're talking to general population or whether you're talking to people with a lived experience of a mental illness, they want to feel that they are in control and they have power. And they want to be, they want to be acknowledged that they are smart and that they can make good choices. So I think it's not about bringing in a program or bringing in something else. It's about changing the way in which we think about how services are structured, how workplaces are structured, how universities are structured. And that's a really hard question, but it's a really simple thing. So I wonder then if I can just ask, particularly Jane Cox, because when you started, you, you said about being enthusiastic and passionate, but you also, I think, suggested that part of mindfulness training can be that people then feel more empowered, not to suggest that it's about the organisational change, but there are many different ways of feeling empowered and perhaps that's one of the outcomes for at least some people. Would you like to comment on that? Um, I, re I really would and I, I really appreciate what you're saying and certainly Ray hit this point as well, that looking at the, the system and what's happening. But if you come back down to the individual in the organisation, if they are in a place, they are recognising a sense of disempowerment or frustration or um, a closing in, a system closing, and they are part of that. They come on these programs around, potentially around how do I how do I live through that? How do I be through that while it's with people like these amazing academics who are looking at what the bigger issues around the system. So if an in individual is given support and techniques, not necessarily mindfulness, CBT, whatever, that is around how they are in the system now. So it's my life, it's messy. How do I, how do I enjoy that? How do I, how do I be with the hard bits? How, how am I connected with people who are also going through this? And there is a coming together of that, you know, challenge, I guess, that some of the joy of this and some of the, ah, oh, if I just feel my bloody feet on the ground for 20 seconds, I might do something different this time. And I actually might be heard because... I'm in a place where I can offer some voice. Little, little baby steps. That might happen at home, who knows. But you hear stories, and Fiona and I have been at this now for over a year and a half, of people coming back with, I was just different. I could do something different. So I, mm -hmm. I, I appreciate no, your point. That's helpful. Now, I think there are some more hands up. There's over here, because we haven't had anyone from this side, and down the front, so there's... Thanks, Meredith. And then a gentleman down the front, Ellie, wherever she is. Down the front, yeah. Thanks, Ellie. 
Hi, um, my name's Eden. Uh, this is directed at Ray. Um, how important do you think it is to implement mindfulness strategies in workplaces characterised by practitioner burnout and things like compassion fatigue and stress leave and, and that kind of thing? Well, it could be one of a, a range of things that people might do. I guess uh, for me it would be having a look at what are the underlying causes of those kind of um, you know, um, they're symptoms of um, something that's going on in, in the organisation. So um, I guess it, um, there could be a range of different things that organisational leaders might put in place to ensure that they have a, a healthy and productive and, you know, satisfying workplace for their employees. Mindfulness may be one of them, but I, I could tell you there could be a whole range of others which might look to supervisor-employee relationships, might look to peer-to-peer -peer relationships might look to relationships between um, different organisation um, member groups um, on a gendered basis, on a, you know, ca a contingent um, full-time basis, on a seniority to more junior staff basis. So I guess there's a, you know, it's a, it depends on what your diagnostic is of what's going on in the organisation, but all of those are all symptoms of, um, you know, an organisation that's not travelling very well and, and employees telling you that something's going wrong. I would say, uh, from my perspective, um, implementing uh, mindfulness um, and investing in those kind of strategies may well be very a uh, very important part of a, a toolkit that might go to being able to try to promote a more healthy um, and productive and enjoyable workplace for employees. Thank you. And the gentleman here in the front, Ellie, thank you. Hi, my name is Peter. Um, my question is about evidence, I think, and uh, possibly this is a Nick question, but Again, I don't mind who answers it. Um, the evidence um, for physical activity seems to be widely, the evidence for the benefits of physical activity seems to be widely accepted now. And the evidence for mindfulness or its equivalence generated by this university, generated by Oxford University and other, other places for many years now, has that reached the point where, you, where the public health authorities indeed could give generic advice like they do for... 30 minutes a day, five days a week type of advice re regarding mindfulness or its, um, its equivalent? I, <laughs> I think it's really interesting this concept of, if you know there, you know, what dose is enough? <laughs> because there are different ways of delivering it, there are different interactions, there's different social relationships that occur. Actually, what's quite interesting is the what's called the effect size. Actually, it's really difficult to pick apart whether there is any dose-effect relationship. Um, and it might be in terms of the evidence of the interventions, because all we're looking at is the intervention. And I think many of the practitioners around the room will say, it's not what you do in the first six weeks, it's actually what you do for the next for the rest of your life or months. I've been doing a version called Autogenics, which is a sort of mindfulness meditation practice that originated in Switzerland in 1920. I've been doing that for about 26 years now. I'm now so mindful I've lost all my hair. So it's a real difficulty in actually in identifying you know, what is enough and you know, what is enough to achieve some response and, you know, and what is not enough to achieve some response. So I think the bottom line is, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if others do. No. Uh, Jane, did you I mean, they, do, they do offer 
um, as a basic, and I, I'm not sure how much evidence sits behind this, but Craig Hassett offers this, and he's, he's an esteemed academic. Um, ten, get this, 10 minutes a day of formal practice, and that might be in two lots of five minutes, so 10 minutes, um, be it with a, a guided meditation through an app or your own practice of breathing and being mindful, um, with the sprinkling of informal practices, so being mindful when you brush your teeth, wash the dishes, Absolutely. Washing up. Who guessed? It could be so fabulous. Um, that these simple things in life that have become annoyances for us. <laughs> Jane's reminded us, talking about um, washing up, that we'll all need to uh, leave in a moment and go home and do that very basic activity. Eat and someone's going to have to wash up. Um, is that We've got time for just one last question and then we really will have to close. Hi, um, I'm Jess. Um, I'm just an undergrad student, so my question might be a bit ridiculous. But um, uh, I grew up in Asia where mental health till this day is still a very taboo topic and the educational and working lifestyle is still really, really unhealthy. And so I guess tonight we've been talking a lot about um, mindfulness on an organizational level. And I was just wondering how you would go about introducing it on a more, I guess, national level to sort of change um, people's mindsets in terms of mental health as well as study techniques and working lifestyles and things like that. Thank you, Jazz. That's a great question to finish with. I'm sure the panel will be really beautifully challenged by that, so thank you. And please don't just say, just an undergraduate yeah. student. You're our exactly. most valued person here. So please, over to the panel, a quick one-line answer to Jazz. Ben. Um, interestingly, as part of my fellowship, I briefly visited Beijing and Singapore, partly to try and get a first-hand perspective on how students from Asia are seeing sort of mental health issues, and it's why I think they're a really important group in universities particularly because there are different cultural conceptions of mental health in the first place. There are often language barriers and it's difficult to express one's psyche in words at the best of times, alone when you're having to sort of translate it into a language you're not most comfortable with. And then there are parental expectations and pressures and um, fears about information being disclosed to your academic supervisors if you talk to, say, the counsellor. So um, you touch on a really important point there about cultural differences, which we do have to be acutely aware of in universities. As to your broader question about how do you change the culture of a nation in terms of having it value mental health more, I think that's a million-dollar question, and it's one that you know, Jane has mentioned when she says that we look at suicide rates today and we compare them to 20 years ago and they haven't changed. but the road toll, I think, is a really good uh, comparison because over the same period, there's actually been a drastic reduction in the number of people dying on the roads. And again, as Jane was saying earlier on, that uh, requires a whole of community response, which is multifaceted. And so the road toll wasn't reduced just because cars got safer. It was because we introduced blood alcohol testing, we introduced seat belts, we changed cultural expectations and norms. 
all of those types of things would be required as well to have Australian society recognising mental health as a core component of health broadly. And there are some really promising signs to that effect, which is great. I mean, the fact that we can have a discussion like this and talk about mental health without people thinking, oh, that's for them, not for us, is a really positive move. So I'm quite optimistic, but I think it's going to take a lot more work and something akin to what we did for the road toll and perhaps drawing on that from, for inspiration and also hope that we can get there. And I'm not going to give the rest of the panel a go. And they'll probably never speak to me again. But I think Ben's answer probably sums up many of the things that have been said tonight. So thank you, Ben, for speaking on behalf of the panel. And I'd like you to give the panel a big round of applause. And a round of applause to yourselves as well for the questions. And thank you for coming along. And if you'd like to continue the conversation with us about this on Twitter, there are two Twitter accounts, one with the hashtag MindfulSydney, all one word, and the other hashtag HealthyUni, all one word. And if you've got a few minutes and wish to ask any more questions, because I know we didn't get to everybody, our panel members will be here just for a few minutes if you'd like to ask them something individually. And thank you again very much for coming along and travel home safely.